Hey gang, to hear my full talk, you have to check out the awesome podcast, TED Talks Daily. So those guys post a new idea every day of the week on every subject imaginable, and you can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. If we truly want a more equitable, more prosperous, and more sustainable economy, if we want high-functioning democracies and civil society, we must have a new economics. And here's the good news. If we want a new economics, all we have to do is choose to have it. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer one American capitalist's desperate attempt to save us from ourselves. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Stephanie Urban. I run a lot of our advocacy and campaign work here at Civic Ventures. So Nick, your most recent speech for TED is out. You recorded last month in Edinburgh on the TED main stage, which is super cool. What an honor. Yeah, super fun. And at the end of this episode, we'll play a clip from your speech at TED and tell our listeners where they can watch the whole thing. But I want to take you back and talk about what led up to this moment of you taking the main stage at TED this year. So you've done two TEDs before. Can you talk about those and what you covered? Yeah. So I gave my first TED Talk, I think, in 2012. And that was pretty controversial because um, I made this argument basically about inequality in 2012, that the true job creators in a market economy aren't rich people like me, but rather are uh, middle-class consumers. Sort of hard to believe, but in 2012, talking about inequality was not fashionable. (laughs) It made people really angry and crazy, and there was a lot of um, controversy around that talk. But uh, we got past that controversy, and in 2014, I did another talk based on this piece I wrote for Politico called The Pitchforks Are Coming For Us Plutocrats, where I warned that rising inequality was going to bring a lot of social and political disruption, uh, which clearly has come. (laughs) Right. And And, that got 2.1 million views. Yeah. Right. Incredible. But to be clear, the first one got millions of views, too. Right. And then... Uh, the good folks at TED agreed to let me do a third talk, which is less prognostication about the problem, but more a discussion of what we have to do to get ourselves out of this mess. Right. But so we're five years from the last time you took the stage. Yeah. That warning that you gave to your fellow plucrats that the pitchforks were coming. Yes. Do you they think they definitely have, are coming? <laughs> yeah. Do you think it had an impact? The talk. The talk. Well, it certainly didn't prevent people from electing Donald Trump, (laughs) which is very much in the spirit of the pitchforks coming, right? Like, if you let inequality rise too much, it shreds the reciprocity norms that social cohesion and democracy depend on. And the election of Donald Trump was an expression of people's anger about the political system, right? They were, you know, most people felt screwed and certainly Hillary Clinton represented not an antidote to that screwing for a lot of people, but right. but just more of the same. And they were lashing out, and so they ended up electing the person who was lashing out too. And now we have, uh, you know, honestly, a big 
big problem because it's not just that the policies are bad, they are, but a lot of the norms that the democracy depend on have been torn down. And that yeah. is either going to be hard or may, in fact, be impossible to repair. So so the pitchforks are still coming. Yeah, they yeah. may have come yeah. in one and form. And it may and- be too late, but... Um, But here we are. But what about like with the economic community? When you gave that first speech and even when you gave the second one in 2014, there wasn't yet a consensus in the economic community that at least the orthodoxy was wrong. Yeah. Do you think since then that's changed? Yeah. No, no, no. For sure. I mean, you know, like. Like you were confronting people in those speeches and they were shocked. Yeah. And angered by the claims. And for sure, the academic economic community was still pretty resolute that there was no problem, (laughs) or at least the majority. And, you know, in 2014, the idea of the $15 minimum wage, for instance, was still regarded as insane and counterproductive and politically impossible and so on and so forth. And, And now it's a much more normalized idea. Right. In 2014, we were still fighting with virtually every academic economist uh, over the idea of that, that, right. it, you know, that it was possible, plausible. So we've uh, at least made some progress. We have made years. some progress. <laughs> uh, sadly, not enough, uh, fast enough, but definitely there's been some progress made. So I want to spend most of our time talking about your most recent speech. It's still super fresh. As we talked about, if your last couple speeches were sort of predicting pitchforks, yeah. being sort of a warning beacon for your fellow plutocrats, helping identify the problem that we were facing. And your latest speech sort of serves as an answer to that. Did you think about it that way when you were writing it, that you wanted to be the answer to the question or problem you were identifying previously? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. But the other thing that happened is that our thinking evolved a lot over the years in between the last speech and this one, too. Uh, My academic work with people like Eric Beinhocker and others on the weaknesses of neoclassical economics and the emerging strengths of the alternatives has developed a lot. And I could not in 2014 have articulated as clearly as we can now why neoclassical economics and neoliberalism is so wrong, not just morally objectionable, but actually factually incorrect and what the alternative is. And both of those things are infinitely clearer to me today than they were then. And I think I can say with super high degrees of confidence how and why the existing neoclassical orthodoxy is wrong and how and why this emerging non-neoclassical consensus is a good replacement for it. And so the challenge of this speech was to try to make in about 14 minutes, a speech about really technical things that people could kind of understand. And and so in the speech, we tried to identify a couple of three of the foundational mistakes of neoclassical economics and neoliberalism, the idea of equilibrium, uh, homo economicus, and to suggest an alternative way to think about it, that the you know market economies are evolutionary systems that generate prosperity by enabling people to solve human problems and that you know you can pretty easily derive from this new set of first principles a set of reasonably simple uh, ways to think about what to do and what not to do and yeah. so still at work trying to write a book on all this stuff which would be complicated and comprehensive but in the speech I think we do a 
moderately decent job of laying out what's wrong and what's right and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Yeah, and it's a good exercise, right? Like yeah. to try and make approachable yes. in only 15 minutes these yeah. really complicated, yes. both the teardown and the what we can do now if right. we choose to right. argument, especially given we've devoted even just on this podcast to some of the ideas you mentioned, homo economicus. Yeah, hour after hour. Hour after hour. hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of content. Are there things that you feel like you left out that didn't make it in because it was it was only limited to 15 minutes? I left out uh, probably a, a more adequate explanation of what the recent science tells us about human behavior and the dynamics of human social systems, that it's now well established that people aren't homo economicus. In fact, they're cooperative, other regarding, and social. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't be selfish. They can be, yeah. and in fact, often are. But that isn't the fundamental part of human nature than in fact occasionally people are selfish but if you think about your life your daily life 98% of what you do is cooperative behavior every time you walk through a door or go sit down in a restaurant you know or take an elevator you are participating in cooperative behavior or doing stuff that only cooperation made possible and then once in a while we do something competitive. Right. <laughs> or, and all the human science, all of that research yeah. that's been building over the years to explain that obviously can't get cited and, yes. and teased out right. in 15 minutes and, and the great challenge for the speech was is that your instinct, when you're making one of these technical cases, you want to be able to cite and explain that there's not enough time in a short speech like that. So what you have to do is just assert. And so we asserted a bunch of things yeah. in that speech, but feel strongly that we could, you know, the assertions are defensible. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to sit in a few practice sessions, yes. but I know a lot more went into it, despite the fact that you know this shit cold. Yeah. I know it wasn't just one draft. Oh no, my God. <laughs> yeah, we went, went through like 30... We went through 30 drafts, and, and, the, and the early ones were super technical. And as you recall, we, we tried those out on people, and they were just like, what did he say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, people may still out there say, what did he say? But trust me, <laughs> what, what, we, what we ended up with was far better than where we started. Did you think about the fact that Ted sort of represents this more elite audience when you were giving your speech and thinking about what you wanted to come out of it? I mean, there's two TED audiences, right? There's people who go to the conferences. That's one group of people. And then there's people who watch the videos. That's a similar but different audience, obviously. The group of people who want to listen to a 14-minute long speech on economics is a pretty elite crowd to begin with. I don't care how what True. kind of a speech you give. Obviously, not everyone is interested in that. We definitely tried to write the speech so that it would be broadly accessible yeah. and accessible to people who are not experts in economics or um, who didn't think about this stuff all the time. And Do you think you achieved that in the end? Um, only time will tell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it matters what we think. I think it matters what... Uh, you know, the broad audience thinks. So we talked about how over the years, the consensus has changed, at least in sort of throwing out the orthodoxy, being able to identify that sort of orthodox economics got it wrong. Yeah. But the new ideas that you presented and that will give our listeners a chance to hear, those new ideas are not the new consensus. No, There's a, no, a group definitely of not. you who yes. think this is the 
path forward. Yeah. And the best, uh, you know, my colleague, Eric Beinacher, who runs the Institute for New Economic Thinking, has this framework that he uses to describe sort of the the ecology of economics. And they're really, they're, they're sort of three camps. There's the orthodoxy, which are mostly old white guys who are like, what, is there a problem? Like, <laughs> no, it's all fine. You know, like what inequality? That's good. Profits are soaring. Yeah, yeah, yay. <laughs> that, the, the, and there is a big group of those folks who are like, no, homo economicus, perfect. Equilibrium theory, perfect. Everything's wrong. It's I like all being fine. selfish. Yeah, exactly. It's all good. Um, then there's another group uh, that ha- of of people who are trained classically, but who definitely think, okay, there's some stuff that's super wrong here, and we have made mistakes, and we are going to fix them. We call that school market failureism. And market failureism, those are the group of neoclassical economic thinkers who acknowledge all of the market failures, inequality, uh, uh, climate change, the disruptions of globalization, all these things, right? They're like, oh my God, there are Trade, all these market consequences, yeah, all the bad, all shit the bad shit. There's a ton of happen. bad shit. Yeah, there's a ton of bad shit, and those are called market failures, and we have to fix them, and we have these um, ways of looking at it that will allow us to address market failures, and that's good work and fine work. But there's this other school of thought which we're trying to build, which is that maybe we should have a theoretical framework for economics where all of the interesting bits you don't call market failures right <laughs> right like it's kind of nutty Novel. That, yeah, that all <laughs> of the it, things that you need to work on in economics we call market failures that's a sign that maybe the theoretical framework you're using is inadequate and you know our argument is if your behavior model is wrong mm-hmm. if the way in which you could see the system is wrong if your theory of value is wrong, and if your way of imagining how human societies generate growth is wrong, then all of the things that happen will be failures, right? right? Like, and if you get your behavior model right, and you have you know a modern view of the system, and you have a adequate theory of value and a better way of understanding how human societies generate progress, then you have essentially incorporated all of the interesting bits in economic theory. And it's not just a matter of smashing down the failures. And so that's what real new economic thinking is. And that's the promised land. And the great challenge is to build the theoretical framework in the promised land while encouraging the market failureism guys to continue to work hard to mash down the failures. And the challenge, of course, is is that even the, the best people in market failureism land who are working assiduously to try to make the world a better place are quite defensive about their theoretical models because hmm. they're wedded to them and still think that they're all we need to fix the world. And I respectfully disagree. I think that right. those models are what got us into the into this mess and they're not likely to get us out in a complete way. So that's the challenge. Yeah. And so, like you said, you didn't invent a lot of this content, but you've collaborated on a lot of it with folks in the new economics space. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, to be clear, we didn't invent any of these new economic right. concepts. All we've done, our work has been simply to raise up in a coherent way 
the research that social scientists have been doing for the last 40 years on behavior and systems and and so on and so forth. You know, Eric and my work is to simply show how and why we know the old frameworks are just wrong, just objectively wrong, and what social science has produced over the last 40 years to replace it. And yeah. when you lay it out, it's like, holy crap, like right. that stuff's wrong and this stuff's right. And we should we should go in this direction. But it, it will be a long, hard slog to get there. But I think the other contribution that's significant that you make in particular is finding ways to make these arguments accessible yeah. and approachable and understandable. Yes. Because it's not, I don't know this to be true because I'm not in your sort of academic yeah. space, but I would assume that if you're purporting a new economics that's more inclusive, that then the arguments should be more widely shared too, right? Like the theory and the understanding of where growth comes from should also be available and transparent and not just kept among economic elites. For sure. And one of the great challenges is to create a new political consensus around new economic theories, because in the absence of that, you end up uh, with the same crappy policies right. uh, framed in the same crappy ways by the same crappy people benefiting the same small group of rich people, yeah. right? That that the economic consensus over the last 30 or 40 years created a political consensus that generated a policy consensus that screwed most people and benefited a few. And so in the absence of creating a new kind of consensus, that a thriving middle class creates growth isn't a consequence of growth. You can't really build the politics and the policies that will lead to a better world. Yeah. So it was fun to talk to Nick about his experience with Ted and what went into planning his speech. But I also wanted to get behind the scenes with the Ted folks and what it was like to work with Nick from their perspective. So to do that, I talked to Corey Hajum from Ted. I'm Corey Hajum. I'm Ted's business curator, which means that I look for um, speakers from the world of business to talk about ideas on our stage. And then I also help people script their talk and um, deliver it. So I coach them through the process. And what did you do before joining TED? Um, probably not a typical background for people at TED, but I worked in finance for about 10 years just prior to TED, um, both in asset management and then also as an analyst and an investor. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, kind of unusual. Um, but I think in some ways, sort of similar, because as an investor, you're always looking for interesting people with new ideas and kind of understanding their stories and their strategies and trying to figure out whether they have power and um, traction. So in some ways, similar. So do you like it more than finance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the best job I've ever had. I absolutely love it. There's nothing, I, I can't imagine a more interesting job. You're just meeting with people, interesting, smart people who have ideas and you know want to have impact. And then really helping them shape and deliver their message in a way that can be, you know, have the most impact and helping someone communicate something really clearly and then seeing them do it is so satisfying. I also don't have to wear suits. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bonus. I don't have to wear suits either, which I also really <laughs> cherish. Can you tell us a little bit about how Ted goes about curating the main stage? Like what goes into it? How do you decide what topics or people to include? Sure. So as I said, we have a team of curators and um, some people have particular specialties. So we're all kind of out and about um, talking to people and um, reading and listening. And so there's kind of two ways to come at it. There are, you know, what are the ideas that we think are important to bring to the TED audience? And then, uh, and then you know, trying to find a, a speaker to match with that, who's the right person to speak to that topic. And then there's just like, here's an interesting person doing X, Y, Z, you know, and, and trying to narrow down what their idea might be. So it's both sides of that equation. And then, you know, in general, when we think about a conference, we want people from all around the world. We want a balance of different backgrounds and industries and specialties and even, you know, speaking styles if possible. So we want um, a really balanced and broad program with, you know, science and tech and business and art and all the different things. So I want to transition a little bit into Nick and his specific speech. Why did Ted decide to have Nick on stage in Edinburgh this year? Well, you know, the topic that Nick was addressing around um, economics and income inequality is one that we felt was really important. And we did have several speakers who overlapped in some ways with the issues that Nick was addressing and we felt he had a unique perspective. We're always looking for people. When we go to find a speaker, we look for somebody who has deep expertise in the subject matter that he or she is going to address. And so for Nick, this was something he was very passionate about. He had studied. He had actually had projects that, you know, tested his theories, you know, with the minimum wage issue in Seattle. So we were really excited to have him be a part of it and share his perspective. And it's, it's pretty unique as, um, you know, someone who's been very successful and then, you know, has spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how the world and capitalism can be done differently. You know, looking back, do you have any reflections on, on the process that went into helping Nick prepare his speech? What was it like from your vantage point? I mean, for from my vantage point, Nick was great to work with, um, very open to, you know, conversation about different points he was making, feedback. Crafting a TED Talk is probably more of a collaborative process than people realize. You know, there's always a, a small group of people on our side that is there to help that speaker craft their talk. And it's very much their idea and their words, but when you're thinking about giving a talk that will hopefully reach, you know, a million or more people, you want to make sure that those words land in a way that can have the most impact. So we're always here to help people. And Nick was great about um, receiving that feedback and being thoughtful about how he was going to present his idea and just, you know, continuing to craft it. It is so many rounds of iteration and he was really great about it. it can be it can be hard you know it's hard to keep going and going and going but it's it's usually worth it and he was great to work with and you asked Nick a question at the end of his speech what was the question and why why did you think it was important to ask it 
So the question was about his wealth that he's built over the years. And, you know, he was talking about economics and that we should change it and how it's done and it's unfair and it's creating inequality and growing inequality in our world. And so um, the question was about, you know, if you don't like the system, why not give your money away? When we ask follow-up questions, it's often to address something that might be a critique of a talk. So um, we figured this might be something that people would be thinking about. And so we do those follow-ups to just let that person kind of address something that might be criticized. It feels like every conference is sort of a moment caught in time and that it reflects the sort of maybe the leading edge, maybe, of the place that we're in. So what do you think the future holds for TED like five or 10 years from now? I mean, it's really hard to say, but I think and I hope that we'll continue to do what we do, which is find new and world-changing ideas to share with people. I think TED's really unique in that when people come to the conferences, they, they're they really engaged. You know, they put away their phones. We don't allow people to have their phones out. Um, they're focused and they're really interested and curious in, you know, these big ideas that can have huge impact and, and change the way they think about things. And I hope that we continue to bring ideas to people um, and 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 that people remain open to having their mind changed or learning something new. And so I, I don't know that things will be dramatically different. Um, just the ideas will keep changing. Well, I really appreciate getting the chance to talk with you today and pull back the curtain a little bit for our listeners about what goes into everything that you all do at TED and the speech that Nick gave this year. So thank you so much. Well, we were glad to have him, and um, thank you. It was great. So we're going to play the last five minutes of Nick's TED speech. Nick, could you sort of tee up for our audience what they're about to listen to? Well, in the last five minutes, we sort of go to, like, what you should do. Yeah. Uh, And the five rules of a better economic organization. And uh, I think we should let the speech speak for itself. So, how do we leave neoliberalism behind and build a more sustainable, more prosperous, and more equitable society? The new economics suggests just five rules of thumb. First is that successful economies are not jungles, they're gardens, which is to say that markets like gardens, must be tended. That the market is the greatest social technology ever invented for solving human problems, but unconstrained by social norms or democratic regulation, markets inevitably create more problems than they solve. Climate change, the great financial crisis of 2008, are two easy examples. The second second rule is that inclusion creates economic growth. So the neoliberal idea that inclusion is this fancy luxury to be afforded if and when we have growth is both wrong and backwards. The economy is people. 
including more people in more ways, is what causes economic growth in market economies. The third principle is the purpose of the corporation is not merely to enrich shareholders. The greatest grift in contemporary economic life is the neoliberal idea that the only purpose of the corporation and the only responsibility of executives is to enrich themselves and shareholders. The new economics must and can insist that the purpose of the corporation is to improve the welfare of all stakeholders, customers, workers, community, and shareholders alike. Rule four, greed is not good. <laughs> Being rapacious doesn't make you a capitalist. It makes you a sociopath. And in an economy as dependent upon cooperation at scale as ours, sociopathy is as bad for business as it is for society. And fifth and finally, unlike the laws of physics, the laws of economics are a choice. Now, neoliberal economic theory has sold itself to you as unchangeable, natural law, when in fact, It's social norms and constructed narratives based on pseudoscience. If we truly want a more equitable, more prosperous, and more sustainable economy, if we want high-functioning democracies and civil society, we must have a new economics. And here's the good news. If we want a new economics, all we have to do is choose to have it. Thank you. Thank you. So, Nick, I'm sure you get this question a lot. <laughs> um, if you're so unhappy with the economic system, why not just give all your money away and join the 99%? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yes, uh, right. Uh, you get that a lot. The, you get yeah, that a lot. If you care time. so much about taxes, why don't you pay more? And if you care so much about wages, why don't you pay more? And I could do that. The problem is, it doesn't make that much difference. And I have discovered a strategy that works literally 100,000 times better, okay. which is to use my money to build narratives and to pass laws that require all the other rich people to pay taxes and pay their workers better. And, that, and so, you know, for example, the $15 minimum wage that we cooked up has now affected 30 million workers. So That's that works great. better. That's great. So. If you change your mind, we'll find some takers for you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you very okay. much. Yeah, so there you go. Um, and for sure, could not have done this without, of course, our, our own Goldie, <laughs> who helped me uh, revise this speech about a thousand times, and my collaborator, Eric Beinhocker. And by the way, uh, uh, the folks at TED, uh, Bruno, who made a huge uh, contribution, and, um, and honestly, a bunch of other friends. My friend, Brian Koppelman, the creator of Billions, weighed in. Uh, my friend Neil Katyal uh, gave me some great advice. You know, a whole mess of other people 
And, um, you know, hopefully it worked out. Yeah, team effort. Yeah. So as a reminder, if you want to hear the full speech, you can find it at TED Talks Daily Podcast, or you can view it on TED.com. And we'll make sure to put links to both in the show notes. On an upcoming episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking about free trade. But of course, as is our want, much of that conversation will be theoretical. So we want to hear from you. How has trade policy affected your life? Have you had a job offshored overseas? Has it been good for your business? Tell us your story. Give us a call at 731-388-9334, and maybe we'll use it on the air. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.